You're listening to The Media Narrative. I'm Rob Hoschild. In this episode, the second part of my conversation with journalist, editor, and podcaster, Julio Ricardo Barela. When I interviewed Julio in May, it was just before the release of a Harvard School of Public Health study estimating that the number of deaths in Puerto Rico relating to Hurricane Maria were much higher than government estimates. In fact, more than 70 times higher than the official government count of 64. In part two of the interview you're about to hear, Barela talks about the importance of tracking that story. Also in this episode, Barela dissects the challenges of being a journalist during the Trump era and provides more advice for aspiring journalists. So let's talk about a couple of things you've been reporting on. Yeah. Uh, actually, just yesterday, uh, you posted a story yourself about the delays in the official announcement of the Hurricane Maria death count. Yeah. So why is this taking so long? And, <laughs> and, and what are we going to ultimately learn about the impact of this storm? Yeah, no, I, it's, I'm glad you noticed that. Like once in a while, even as an editor, I, I still have some stories that are near and dear to my heart. And right. I've been very close to the story. So I feel like sometimes as an editor, you have to write. You know, I think that's a lesson that people say. Sometimes you, you have to kind of be a reporter again because then it yeah. keeps, you, keeps you on your toes, right? So for people, for the long and short of it, ever since the hurricane hit Puerto Rico in last September, the official death count by the government of Puerto Rico has started at like 16 and then it's gone up to 32 and it stays at 64. A lot of reporting, mostly a, a specific shout out to my good friend and colleague Omaya Sosa of the Center for Investigative Journalism, who was the first reporter um, based in Puerto Rico. Like that's the thing. There was a local journalist who was like, something's missing here because if you can imagine all the power going out in hospitals at the same time, who knows what happened? Right. Like we, I don't think we'll ever know, mm -hmm. but there was enough stories that she was hearing on the ground that it's like, you know, I can't find my father or he, his respirator went out or there's no power. Like there, there was reports of funeral homes. Like they were getting more bodies right in September and October. So, so we've been very close. Like I have been close personally with Latino USA and Latino rebels plus Omaya with the center for investigative journalism mm -hmm. that we started just collaborating and seeing that something was up. And the big takeaway for people that haven't heard is that if you compare the deaths in October and September of 2017 with the deaths in Puerto Rico from in, in September in October of 2016 and September of 2016 this is a very right. important point yep. there are a thousand there's an excess of a thousand more deaths each, each month that the, wow. that that September and October were the the deadliest like I don't know how to say the the, the months with the most deaths in Puerto Rico in the last five to seven years mm. it was a bit you know any statistician would be like what's up right the governor of Puerto Rico people say it's a it's not a conspiracy like in my sense in my reporting I I actually believe that when Power goes out, you know, society, like all of society, like there's, what do you do? Like, how do you, re how do you record deaths? Like right. your entire systems are shut. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot there and, and we, th that people might've missed in how you report things administratively. But what's happened is that it, what I say, it's like, it's a delay in the reporting of the truth. Right. Like, I think it's one of those things where journalists know, cause they've done some, you know, not only the CPI, or myself with Latino USA and Latino Rebels, but you know Fran Francis Robles of the New York Times wrote wrote a wrote an, a great analysis. Uh, BuzzFeed, CNN, Vox.com, uh, the Washington Post. Everyone's kind of been the ABC News just did a great piece over the weekend 
And and the thing is, we don't know what the study like. There was supposed to be this study that was going to come out in January, and then it was delayed for March, and now right. it's like it was going to come out uh, in May, like May twenty second, which mm-hmm. is like right now. Right. And then it just got delayed to the summer, which could be anything from June twenty first to 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 Labor Day, right, or September twenty yeah. first. And so, I don't know. The big question I have as a journalist is like, are we de- de- delaying the inevitable? of the reality that there were a lot more deaths because people on the ground were telling us very different stories than the government was saying. And this became a question of accountability because if people remember when President Trump came to visit Puerto Rico during his famous paper towels incident, right. um, he was at like he, he was at the Air Force, he was at the base with the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo Rosselló, and and Trump was bragging about how low the death count was. Right. And he turned to the governor of Puerto Rico and he said, well, it's low, right? What is it? And the governor of Puerto Rico said 16 certified deaths. And everyone in the, like even the most ardent supporters of the governor of Puerto Rico were like, dude, like, what are you doing? Right. Like, tell the truth. The moment the president left it, it the government of Puerto Rico had already doubled the death count mm-hmm. and it was going to. So there's this there's this thing that when I hear government officials Ask me as a journalist, why are you so obsessed with this story? Like, think about that. Like, as a journalist, you're like, that's like catnip for a journalist. <laughs> you know <laughs> right, what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's kind of like, oh, so maybe I'm, maybe I should be asking tough right. questions. Yeah. Like, it's like you're being difficult. You, you know, you, you shouldn't be asking this. You're biased. You're against the governor. And I'm like, I'm not here to run political campaigns. There are questions that, you know. If 2,000 lives lo- were lost, those are 2,000 stories. Those are 2,000 mm-hmm. people. They're not numbers. And let's not underestimate the power of this storm. I know on good authority, and I say this, as I, I got private texts from people in the government of Puerto Rico who were texting me when the hurricane was hitting, saying this is the worst thing ever. And to not... To not acknowledge, I, I think it's more of a question of, of, of being truthful with, with, your, with your society. And it's not about like, like I said, this is not about a conspiracy theory. Some people will, will say that, but it's not about a cover-up. I think it's about like, why can't you just be upfront with your people? And I think that, that to me is what leadership's all about. So I guess as a journalist, if I, if I question authority is not what you're supposed to do that's what you're supposed to do and i mean doesn't this also this question get at the heart of the place that puerto rico holds in the minds of our government leaders right yeah. now like if yeah. this was if this was a happening uh anywhere it, you know anywhere else Pick, i mean stateside even in, like know? my thing is it's like you know you look at katrina right when this was happening in katrina i think people remember when the death count in katrina was much larger than what was reported once that came out i mean that resonated with americans and I think, I think this is an important thing because it, it, it just speaks to how governments try to report crises and the politics behind it. And I guess for me, it, maybe I'm, I'm a little bit more um, idealistic about what leadership's all about. And I think, you know, I think people in general, are, I think in general, people are very, people are inherently good i mean i don't see there's ill intent in like oh let's cover this up right but i do think that when faced with pressure people might want to 
not tell you the truth, mm -hmm. which I don't think that that's right. And I think right. like in general, the press, like that's what we should be doing. Right. right. And if you really think, if you look at this, if you compare, like even outside of the death count, you know, like we could talk about the specifics of that story, but at the bigger macro level, if you're listening to this and you're like, as a media maker, someone who's reporting as a political journalist, the bigger issue is like, what are you trying? Why? What are you trying? Why are you giving me this version? Like, what is it that I should be knowing? And I think more political reporters, especially in this day and age, need to be asking that. Like, I, for example, the White House now, and we talk about it in the thick and Latino rebels, like the White House issuing a press release about the animals of MS-13 mm -hmm. that came out uh, on May 21st. That, And what you have now, because, you know, pull all the facts aside, you know, I, I don't care what anyone's saying. The United States is not being overrun by Central American gang members. Right. It's just not. Mm -hmm. Like, they're isolated cases, mostly against immigrants. Like, that's one thing that people are missing. And they also miss the fact that it's a U.S.-created problem. Because if you really start looking at the history of MS-13, it was formed in Los Angeles. They were deported back to, like, Central America. They came back. Like, there was a lot more. People tend to forget that there was major civil wars in Central America that dis displaced a lot of these people. But, and the majority, you know, there's a lot of U.S. citizens who are, who are members of MS-13. But the media, the political media has allowed the White House to own that narrative. Right. Because when you look at that press release, and I, I looked at it, and then you start doing a Google News search, a simple Google News search, just to see, like, what are the outlets reporting? And everyone's reporting it verbatim. You rarely see that one reporter who's like, this is like BS. Like, this is just propaganda. Like you, you get like people in the White House press briefing are like, oh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, like, let's like, oh, tell me a little bit more about MS-13. And that's the thing. It's code word. You know what? The thing about MS-13 is like it's code word for immigrant, for criminal, for terrorist. And, and the president of the United States, that's the message that he tells to the press. And because media is not and I mean, media, U.S. media, political media is not diverse it's very white and male you don't have a lot of julio carlo varelas in the room saying wait do you like i i need to challenge this right and if you do challenge it like for someone like me to challenge it i'm labeled as a bio, biased latino journalist i have an agenda um i don't know what i'm talking about and i kind of said like screw you i went to harvard like what like i covered harvard hockey like you know what i mean it's like what like i am not like there's a bigger question of questioning, you know, why, you know, accountability. Like, I hold that to be dearly for the, the, when you look at the free press, isn't this what this country's all about? Is that we're supposed to question power. And I think what's happened now is when you question power, you are definitely targeted. You are definitely uh, slandered. Like, you're definitely someone who's like, you're not good enough. And so it's very easy to, to, to bash someone like me when I, when I raise questions to the government of Puerto Rico or the white house. And that, that's a very toxic environment. I mean, I, and I have friends of mine who do this every day nationally. I don't know how they're covering this administration and, and staying like sane, but 
but that's that to me is a huge concern. Oh yeah, I mean it's a scary moment, and the the way that the White House seems to control the narrative, and speaks to the need for the media to really step up more than ever before. And this is also that uh, the dark side of social media, and yeah. to see the way yeah. the White House controls the narrative through Twitter mainly. So that seems to just raise a whole other. Yeah, and I and I think that's it, it's a great way to. To kind of circle back to like, because I, I am, I'm a big believer in digital and social media. Like I believe done right, it's the most powerful means of communication, media tool in the history of civilization. Yep. Like human, like without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, But like to quote Sp- Spider-Man's uncle, like with great power comes great responsibility. And I do think that we can't allow for what you're saying is like, how people manipulate digital media in this day and age to kind of create this environment that you're informing when in fact you are scaring, you are fear-mongering. And I think it's a, even a, a bigger opportunity. Like this is a time for journalists or people in media to to really speak out more about this because I think it does speak to the bigger issue of are we – moving down sort of this authoritarian, you know, let us silence suppress. And I'm sorry, like if people want to talk about the second amendment and feel as, you know, passionate about defending the second amendment, first amendment needs, you got to feel just as passionate and that, that knows no parties. And I do feel like it's very easy to scream fake news in a crowded movie theater right now. Mm Mm-hmm. And like, so, you know, and that, that kind of tries to, de- you know, that try to takes the hard work and, and it's quick to just like, say like, this is no good. You're delegitimizing your work by just screaming fake news. And we've allowed that. We've allowed that because we have allowed to, you know, we've turned tweets by the president of the United States into breaking news. Right. Like seriously, like think about it. It's like, what the hell? Like breaking news, like you just tweeted almost every day. Every it's like breaking news, Twitter, and then you're like, "Can we just step back for a second? Just step back for a second. Like, do you know how many people tweet every day? Like, do you know like that it's it's that it's used to manipulate, it's used to distract, and if you're gonna cover it, which like like cover it in the way of like, hey, this guy has lied on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And here, you know, and 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 I think we don't do enough. We kind of, as a as a U.S. media, we get very scared about what objectivity really means. Right. It's like, and it's like, if you're not objective, you're not a journalism. I find that to be such a crock because right. I look at Cronkite. I look at Cronkite. I look at Morrow. Like these two guys. Like I I, I tell young students like. Go to YouTube and go, like, watch what Walter Cronkite, who was America's trusted news anchor, was doing at the height of the Vietnam War. That's a great point. Yeah. You know, and and this is, it, and I sit there and I'm like, he was questioning power, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, he's revered. And there's a tradition of American journalists who have always questioned power, whether you were, you know, whether you're Mar or whether you were, you know, black journalists covering lynchings in the South, you know, 
a black journalist covering lynchings in the South at the at the turn of the 20th century is definitely going to look at it differently. You've got to have a point of view. Yeah. And this whole like notion of like, well, you have to be objective in the Trump administration is like, do you? Do you really know? Right. Do you, I mean, seriously, where's the line? Like, I understand that's not everything that the administration does has, you know, I think there's a lot of like overreaction, but I also think that, you know, the MS-13 thing, I'm, I'm just sitting here and going, we've allowed this. Like we as a media have allowed this because that's just racist pro- propaganda. Right. That That's all it is. That is propaganda. Latino rebels tweeted out the following thing. It did the white house put the, you know, the white male mass shooters on, on screens and talk about like school shootings and how many people have died. You think they'll ever do that. Right. But hey, MS-13, let's get them up there. Let's mm-hmm. put the tattoos on. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the problem. It's like we've allowed for things to be foreign, other, to be a threat when there's enough there's enough examples in our own world that that kind of go against that narrative. Absolutely. And it's not so much about subjectivity versus objectivity. It's about truth. The objective should be truth. And that's the thing that seems so hard to nail down right now. Yeah. And the big thing is when you try to bring the truth, it's you get labeled as bias. Right. right. So like I work for the Democrats, which is like, that's what I get. It's like, oh, I'm a communist. Right. When in fact, I let the record stand for myself. It's like perfect example. When I was covering the, the campaign for Latino USA in 2016, I wrote some very uh, factual articles about the Hillary Clinton campaign and how it's having a problem with the Latino vote on certain issues, you know, on what she said about immigration and sending kids back to Central America, the Honduran coup and things like that, that people would be like, oh, you're being ridiculous. I'm like, no, that's what young people are telling me. And you have to be critical to power. Like it, but, but now when you bring it up, it's like, we are very easy it's very easy to put journal like people just label journalists right as like oh no you're working for this team or this team is like no I don't it's just that I can see like the MS13 thing a, a, a press release like a white official like they actually wrote that like that's the that's the that's the United States that's the United States that is not like you're supposed to represent everybody right and like I said it's like if you're so concerned about MS13 then you must be really concerned about the the victims, the immigrant victims that that are terrorized. They're, they're the ones that are dying. Mm-hmm. You, know, you look at the stats, it's like, you know, most Americans are terrorized. Like, no, really start looking at the cases. So if you're so concerned about immigrants, which you really aren't, like you should be leading with that because that's those are the people that are getting hurt from this. Well, it seems like a game of sorts is being played in politics where it is about winning the narrative, whatever the narrative exactly. s- is that serves that political objective and it's made it very hard for everyone to know where the line is between right. truth and non-truth or or who's really looking out for the interests of the country or not. right that's a that's a big thing so so another topic that's been very top of the fold for latino rebels lately is juno diaz oh yeah and uh you had a couple of really well-written very searing pieces written by two women who had direct contact with Mm -hmm. him in the last couple of weeks. Uh, The articles came out in the last couple of weeks. And uh, and then there was that article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, a letter from 26 academics that criticized the media coverage as um, sensationalist. Yeah. So I'm wondering, (laughs) 
where you see this, and I know you and Maria talked about this a little bit. Yeah, we um, did it in the thick. We did a little uh, in the thick episode uh, about like we call it the in the thick extras because we, exactly. you know, because you know Diaz is he's a contemporary of mine, um, and Maria knows him through her husband uh, Hedman, who's who's Dominican. So you know. I've been teaching his stories in my classes yeah, at Berkeley exactly. College of Music, and 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 yeah, he's 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 legit. I mean, Juno's absolutely. legit. I mean, he's 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 of my generation. Um, I don't know him personally, but I know obviously he he's had a huge influence on 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 people in my generation and and a lot of people all over. But I I think one of the things that I've learned from these pieces, first of all, I, the fact that these two women, um, you know, there of many, the one of them approached me and said, I need to write this. And I was very, very um, honored that she thought of Latino Rebels. And I was very, very proud that we could give her a platform. Because that's what I mean. The role of the editor is so important in this. That it's like, I want to pitch you. I want this published. I'm writing from the heart. You know, and this is real. And when I read it, I was like, oh my God, I need to publish this in the next like 20 minutes because it is so good. Mm -hmm. Right? This is adds another layer. Which which leads me to this 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 uh, point I wanted to make about the twenty six women academics who wrote this letter and blamed it on digital and and the press. Um, I'm not sitting here as an editor to be like, oh, gotta get clicks because of Juno Diaz. Um, I tell this to everybody. It's like these pieces that I published for Latino Rebels from these writers came from them. It's their voices. I didn't actively seek them. They felt the need to become public about this. And they were scared. Some of them were nervous. But but I said, we'll publish you. We stand by what, you know, stand by what you publish. We will support you. You're going to, you are going, this is a real, it's a real piece. It's going to resonate with people. So this whole notion of like, well, the media is is overblowing this. It's like, it's not coming from the media. It's coming from from women, and I think that's where I kind of lose the the argument. Like, I don't get the argument about well, it was you know everyone's tweeting about it. I'm like, yeah, because that's what people do. Right. I don't think that there's this like campaign out there to be like we're gonna drag down Juno Diaz. I think it's a I think the news of him, you know, when he wrote his piece about what happened to him as a kid being sexually abused and the fact that you start seeing these stories coming about a, a month later from, you know, Zinzi Clemens and other people, that it sent a shock to the community. Like, this is like, you know, he's a big deal. He's always been a big deal. Right. So you kind of have to step for a second and say, like, you know, this is a, this is a writer that has impacted people in a way that, you know, as a writer that you feel connected to. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if women who, who, if women want to tell that story and if people want to react to it, whether good or bad, let them like, this is what a conversation and engagement is all about hiding it and, and not talking about your dirty laundry. Um, that doesn't help the community at all. Mm -hmm. And so I think the issues of misogyny, the issues of patriarchy, um, colorism, anti-blackness in the Latino community, I would say this all the time, are just beginning to get explored and it's gonna be uncomfortable. And so this is just part of the larger conversation. 
So you see Latino rebels continuing to cover Ab- this issue and absolutely, yeah. we've always been provocative, right? And I think one of the things that when you hear provocative now, um, it's always you know it might turn people off a little bit, but I also think in this day and age, you need outlets that are provocative just as much as you need outlets that inform because they complement each other, right? We're we're kind of you know Latino rebels in its in its place is kind of like one of the people who are like you know people are over there looking for something and we're the ones that raise our hand it's like but have you seen this have you seen this right and i think that's really important in media because everyone can go to the bigger thing um and again you know a perfect example is we do a really good job reminding people what the trump administration's doing in latin america cuz no one's talking about that and our audience is, you know, <laughs> either you're connected to the country you're from with your first, second or generation or your parents are from there. So you have a deep interest in trying to find out what's going on in your home country. So for us, it's like, yeah, but also remember, you need to look at this or look at like how they're ap- approaching immigration or so we try to do that. So. So, yes, you know, we have no problem getting messy in, in this space. I want to ask a quick question about in the thick. Yeah, uh, which is uh, it's a great podcast. It's for anyone who finds himself on the left side of things or who just wants to learn about what's going yeah. on in, in the world and in the Latino world. It's, yeah. it's really uh, it, it's a great source. And and you hit some issues very seriously, very yeah. hard hitting. But there's a lot of irreverence and humor and yeah. there's a certain casualness between you and Maria. Yeah. So how do you create that balance and maintain it while you're digging into some of these really serious issues? <sighs> That's a great question. Um I think, first of all, it starts with chemistry. Like, Maria and I are like, we love each other. Like, mm-hmm. we get along. It's clear, yeah. It's clear. Like, you know, you saw when you, I was glad you, you know, we met at the live podcast recording at the PRX uh, podcast garage. That's right. Um, and you saw us, you know, like, you saw us interacting. We do that all the time. Right. You know, whether it's a phone call, whether it's a text, whether it's like in the studio, or whether we're doing it remotely. I, I think there's a, a level of admiration, love, and respect, and professional, um, mutual professional, like, you're good, I'm good. Like, it's okay to to say, like, we're really good at what we do. Mm-hmm. And I always tell that to, like, young journalists. You know, humility helps you, but if you write a kick-ass piece, like, be proud of it. Mm-hmm. Or if you do a great podcast, be proud of it and, and be like, yeah, I did that, right? So... So we, we try to, um, for us, it's kind of like like a salon, right? That sort of salon thinking of like trying to be ourselves. Because I think when we're in other places as journalists, like you have to kind of put on your journalist hat a little bit more. And I think what In the Thick does is we humanize ourselves a little bit. We can still mm-hmm. talk about serious issues. And I also think it gives people a peek into like how actually do journalists craft stories? Because I think one of the things is that they think we're all robots and we're following like the seven checklist thing of like, oh, must have a great lead and I right. must have the balance and blah, blah. When in fact, it's like we're always talking about stories. And and like if you ever go to a pitch meeting or a newsroom meeting and it's like, this is what we're doing, right? It's like, oh, my God, we got to talk about Trump again. Mm-hmm. Leonard is like, like, we should talk about something else. Right. Like that's what you do. Like we are, you know, journalists are human. Right, and that's what I tell people all the time. Thank you for clearing that yeah, up. Yeah, but it's like people tend to forget that, yeah. like, in this day, especially in this day, it's like we don't want to create robots. Right. 
you know, and I think we don't tell the new core of journalists enough of that. Like we don't tell them enough that it's like, yeah, you don't want to be spreading lies. You want to still behave well on social media, but like, what am I not going to say anything about Puerto Rico? That we're going to get destroyed by the hurricane. I'm supposed to be objective about that. Mm-hmm. I, I am like, seriously, that's my home. Like that, my, I, my cousin doesn't have power for two months. You know, I talked to him. I interviewed him for Latino Rebels Radio. It's like, I'm not supposed to like, like I'm supposed to be like, oh, I can't talk about this. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I think it's like, you know, that's the part where I just feel like this country, like one of the things in the thick does is is, is, is trying to peeks back and peek, take a look behind the curtain. Like it is a game sometimes. I think power is a game. I think as a journalist, Mm -hmm. you know that they're playing a game. And, and that's the part where, that's where I want to be. Like, that's the space I want to be in is that it, it's like, I don't know. I guess all of my mother is like, don't, you know, don't BS me, just cut to the chase. And I think that's what we do. And I think that's what media is important. I think we're trying to figure it out. And, and, and it does feel sometimes where it's like, it's just coming at you in so many directions that you kind of just have to stop and be like, whoa, like, why? Why is this happening? The question I keep asking myself more and more is why? More than anything. Not what, not how, not when. It's like, why? Mm-hmm. And I am I really love asking that question. Yeah, it gets at a lot of other it questions. It gets a lot of other questions. And I think like what In the Thick does is we take ourselves seriously enough, but 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 we sh- we should also remind ourselves that we're human right and like you know <laughs> we like to think of in the thick as like a dinner conversation right. that you're having and yeah some of it's it's an on the record dinner conversation <laughs> how's that i like it so one last question for yeah. you um you and you've been touching on this as 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 we've been discussing all of this but what about this next generation of journalists yeah. what advice do you have for young people of color who are looking to enter the field as journalists, as media people. And maybe this is advice that can apply to anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, what, what do you tell them when they ask for advice? This is the greatest time to be a journalist, if that's what you want to do. Because, to be honest with you, there's so many places that can publish you. And you know what? Everyone's going to go to the same places and and pitch the same people. But I would say there's like 20 to 30 outlets that you're probably not even thinking about that could publish you and it could lead to something better. The name of the game now is getting bylines in other outlets, not on your blog, not, you know, you could do it, but the name of the game now is to be like, I got published here. And I tell this to young journalists on time. It's like, do it now. Like do it now. Don't wait until that internship. Don't wait until you break into the newsroom. But get get the byline, but it doesn't have to be in the New York Times. No, it could be anywhere. Latino Rebels. It could be Latino Rebels. It could be Latino USA. If that's not what you're, you know, if you're not Latino, or you can go to, you know, the root, color lines. I'm trying to think of other places that jump out at me. um, That there's plenty of places that editors are always looking for the next voice. At least the way I look at myself in this ecosystem of media, like we are the ground. We are the minor leaks. Like, we're going to get you to the majors, right? Mm -hmm. Play in the minor leagues a little bit because 
interesting things happen in the minor leagues. We are the ones that find the stories first that the internet starts talking about, right? So the famous story about the Spanish, the lawyer in New York who got really upset about, you know, people ordering lunch in Spanish yeah. in Midtown Manhattan. It's crazy. I was told of that video via Facebook message when it only had a thousand views from a friend who was friends of the guy who posted the video, which mm -hmm. I'm like, good for you for posting that video. Mm -hmm. Latino Rebels like published news of that. And we went to bed and next thing you know, we woke up and we're like, oh my God, like the internet's broken. Right. Um, and yeah. we were a part of that. So I say to myself, you're one good story away. If like, it, it adds your credibility. It, I, I tell this to young journalists, even in Boston, even the Boston area, it's like, you should be covering like gentrification, changing neighborhoods in a way that current outlets aren't covering it in the Boston Globe. Because you you do it, video it, live, live stream it, do something, pitch. And it's going to take work. I, I just feel like you have to have a portfolio. I go back to like when I started at the Globe. It's like I brought 60 clips of mine to the Boston Globe in the Harvard Crimson. One of them happened to be a Harvard... They won the national championship. That got me the job because they were like, wow, this is a major event. You did a good job. You're a good writer. And people will notice good writing. People will notice good podcasting. People will notice good videoing. But one of the things that I find with J schools now is they, they internalize that all and colleges. They're, they're just sharing with each other. And I'm right. like, why are you sharing with each other? You don't have to share it in your... your I'm sure, I'm sure, to be honest with you, if you start looking just in, in the Northeast, how many fantastic media makers there really are that are in our journalism schools, that are in our communications departments, that are in school, but they're, they're just talking to each other when I'm like, your entire world, like the entire world is the audience now. And I, the case right. of Puerto Rico, it's like, like I, I'm perfect example is I've been writing about Puerto Rico for 10 years. And then, yeah, tragedy leads to more interest. That's a reality. But I I speak about Puerto Rico a lot with authority now. And right. I think, but I started blogging and I started pitching and I and I got published by somebody else. And it takes a while. And and the other thing is you might not get paid. I know that sucks to hear. Well, this is, and this is an issue that a lot of people talk about. And, yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of concern about journalists and other writers doing work and not getting paid. Uh, but what you're saying is, is that for a period of time, it may help to open a door to someplace else. It could lead to a paying job. Yeah. You know, that's the big thing. It's like, if here's my thing. Do you want to be the person with 30 bylines or do you want to be the person with like one? As an editor, I'm going to look at the one with 30. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like, wow, you're prolific. Like, put in the work. I think it's, I know it sucks. I know it sucks to hear that. Um, You know, I'm, I'm in a place now where I can actually like, pay freelancers which is for me is really really important but there's people that won't and you know and you might find people who are like no i'll pay you and you might just write for one outlet mm -hmm. but just write there it is just right <laughs> uh just do the work yeah. and thank you for doing the work and all the work that you do and for the time today appreciate it julio i had a blast me too Read and listen to Julio Ricardo Barrera's work at latinorebels.com, latinousa.org, and inthethick.org. I did my best to pronounce Julio's last name correctly during this podcast, and I'm afraid 
I may have come up with about 10 different ways of saying his name throughout. So apologies to Julio and the rest of you for that. You'll find show notes and links at themedianarrative.com. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to The Media Narrative and write a review at Apple Podcasts. I'm Rob Hoschild. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.